you're new with us, we start a brand new series today on the gospel according to Luke. We love studying books of the Bible here at IDC, and this will be our longest uh, in our history. Lord willing, it'll take us about 15 months with a break or two along the way. Who knows what 15 months holds uh, for any of us, but that is the plan. And this is a remarkable book of the Bible to, uh, to study. Um, if you've been with us as we were looking at Daniel, it may feel like a bit of whiplash going from Daniel to quickly pivot to the Gospel of Luke, but it's actually a continuation of the story, isn't it? Uh, and we even see another appearance of the angel Gabriel that we saw in the book of Daniel who only appears in Daniel and the Gospel of Luke. And in Daniel, he was speaking about the coming of the Messianic age, and now we read Gabriel coming to speak of the dawning of the Messianic age. And so it's a wonderful, actually, uh, study right after Daniel. So if you're new to the Gospel of Luke, welcome. Um, it's great to have you with us, and I would just encourage you, church, to be inviting friends, neighbors uh, to the study of, of Luke. I'm praying for many people to come to faith in Jesus as we study this book. Kind of a key verse in the book, uh, Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And we want the Lord to do that uh, in our studies together. Uh, if you are familiar with Luke, I think Chesterton's words are, are helpful. The philosopher, when he asked one time, what would it be like to read the Gospels for the first time without any preconceptions? And he said, the story would jar our sensibilities. <laughs> and uh, may we be jarred uh, as we consider this story, the Gospel afresh. And let's pray for the Lord to do that now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Gospel of Luke. What a, what a Gospel it is. And we pray that you would bless our time together, and indeed you would bless our time in the months to come if you should give us more Sundays. We pray that many people would come to faith in Jesus Christ as they behold the gospel. And we pray that your people will be built up in their most holy faith. And do that, we pray, even now in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, in these verses, we're looking at two very disruptive babies. I know you may have a disruptive child, but, and that's fine if, it, if, if he or she is, uh, but these are two very disruptive babies. The announcements of the births of John and Jesus uh, are, we read about in the opening chapter here. And their intertwined ministries would change the world. And Luke lays these two stories side by side. We have two cousins, two announcements, two pregnancies, two deliveries, two hymns of praise. In the opening two chapters, Jesus' story is told against the backdrop of his crazy cousin, John. John the Baptist, as we often call him, the forerunner. He's not a Toyota forerunner, uh, and he's not a Baptist either, for that, for that matter, even though Baptists like to count everybody. Um, but he, he is the, the baptizer. He is the witness. He is the prophet. He is the, the forerunner, the one who would announce the, the, that, the, that the Messiah is here. He is a pointer to the Lord Jesus. And you may wonder why Luke spent so much time on John, as the other writers do not do that in their gospel accounts. And I think it's, it's because he plays a very important role, and his role was a fulfillment of prophecy as well. That before the Messiah appeared, there would be one that would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he would prepare the way of the Lord. It's, it's kind of similar to today when uh, an announcer announces the starting lineup. Uh, he, the announcer's not the focus of attention, uh, but the, the stars who run on the field are the focus of attention. Or as you have that individual uh, who often says before the president speaks, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. John has that kind of role, saying, ladies and gentlemen, 
the Lamb of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the Savior of the world. Uh, don't, don't fix your attention on me. I'm just a witness to Jesus Christ. And he really has the same role that all of us have, pointing people to Jesus. You may not be John the Baptist, you may be John the plumber, or Jane the school teacher, but all of us are to point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John plays an important role. He shows how God has fulfilled his promises, as does Jesus. This is a, a book, the Gospel of Luke, and especially these opening chapters, showing us that we can trust our God. Promises fulfilled. And it also shows us something very practically and, uh, that's, that's encouraging. And, that, and it's these, these verses show us the circumstances in which God often delights to work. Impossible situations. <laughs> we read about the birth of a child from a lady who was barren and a birth of a child from a lady who's a virgin. And at the end of it, verse 37, what should we walk away with? For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Oh, yeah. That's the God that we gather together and make a big deal about. That's the God that we celebrate today, that he can intervene in impossible situations Amen. and bring about good for his glory. So let's have a look at this, oh, these opening uh, chapters. We won't ordinarily take a text this long, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke. We're a week behind in Advent, so I'm making up some ground. So bear with me, all right? Luke's preface, verses 1 to 4 here, um, we, we read about you know, what we can expect as we encounter the Gospel of Luke. It's important to know, I think, that Luke wrote two books, uh, Luke and Acts. And Luke-Acts makes up 28% of the New Testament. Paul's letters only make up 24% of the New Testament. So he is a significant individual, isn't he? We know several things about Luke. We know that he was a doctor. That was practically helpful for Paul because he kept getting beat up everywhere he went and Luke was with him. He was a historian, but not a, you know, a boring historian in a library, more like a Indiana Jones who's out and about on the adventures himself and interviewing people and so on. Some accounts have him in, in church history we, that can be verified that he is the unnamed famous preacher in 2 Corinthians 8. What is clear is that he is an evangelist. His evangelistic heart is, is portrayed all through this account. And one tradition even has it that he is an artist, which wouldn't be a surprise given how carefully he arranges his gospel. He tells us in the opening verses that his account is the result of an investigation, a thorough investigation of the facts and that he has personally uh, interviewed eyewitnesses to these things, as well as those who are ministers of the word. So he's, he's done his homework, he's done the hard work of investigation, and he, his account reaches back, he says, to the very beginning. Not to the, the beginning of the world, not to the creation account, but rather to the beginning of, of the coming of, of Christ, which is why he starts with, with the forerunner, John. His account is thorough. I love how the CSB says, I have investigated everything. <laughs> a very thorough researcher. And that's probably why Luke um, gives us a lot of information and stories that we don't find elsewhere. We have Luke to thank for the story of the prodigal son. Right. We have Luke to thank for the Good Samaritan. Oh, yeah. Stories that have changed the world. The Emmaus Road account in Luke 24 is only in Luke. The beautiful Magnificat that we'll look at next week, and a whole lot more. Strong emphasis in Luke and Acts on prayer, on the Holy Spirit, on the poor, on female disciples, and I love this one, on meals, right? Oh, yeah. 
His account is orderly. It's good to have Pete back, by the way. I missed the my my. Welcome back, Pete. Yeah, it's a little quieter these days, so pep it up a little bit, okay? Um, <laughs> I got you. All right, baby. Um, it, it, the, the story has a, a, a flow to it, right? He says that this is an orderly account. So th- there is a, a, a chronological flow in that we go from the, uh, to the, the birth of Christ to the resurrection. So that's pretty simple to see. There's a geographic flow as well. As we go from Galilee, opening chapters, to Samaria, then eventually to Jerusalem. And then Acts has us going out to the ends of the earth. There's a salvation historical flow. As I mentioned, the story is picking up from Old Testament text, but there's been 400 years of silence. But now Christ has come and we we leave with the resurrection. Acts, Luke shows us the ascension and the birth of the church. Now, what's most uh, significant perhaps is verse four, when he says that there is a purpose to my gospel. And that is that his friend Theophilus would have certainty concerning these things. Right, so Luke is writing to a friend. We don't know much about Theophilus, but uh, if he be called most excellent, was usually something that was referred to like a Roman political official, someone of high standing. He's most likely a new believer and a Gentile. And Luke wants his friend, and now us, to have certainty about what we believe. That we can trust the account that we're about to look at. And that's especially important because it takes faith to believe the stuff we're about to look at. <laughs> when you read about this story of John's birth and the story of Jesus' birth, he wants us to have certainty. And then all the way through, and this is very important, we believe in Christ because we believe the story to be true. Oh, yeah. It's not that we need a, a psychological crutch, as people say, to get us through hard times. It's not because we're products of American culture. It's because we believe by the Holy Spirit who's shown us these things that they're true. And so we want to trust God's word as we read it. And we also want to welcome the doubter. This, this book is written to give certainty. So God's not afraid of your doubts, right? That, to welcome you in. A whole book's written to this guy, Theophilus. And by the way, what a good friend to write a letter this long, a book this long. Have you done that lately? Not, as, not a sarcastic, nasty one, but, you know, an encouraging one. Uh, that's, that's what Luke is doing. And we got Zechariah in the opening chapter who also expresses doubt at one point. So this, this, this book addresses us, and we see God's heart in God's word. God loves to convince the doubter. He loves to have dinner with Zacchaeus. He loves to convert the Mary Magdalene's. And so this is how Luke tells us to, to embrace ourselves for what's about to happen. Amen. So we got these two stories. The first one, Gabriel predicts John's birth, verses 5 to 25. We'll try to go a bit quick here. We see their burden in the, the, the first verses. Luke, as a good historian, gives us the time during the days of Herod. This would have been near the end of his reign. And we're given some detail regarding Zechariah. His role, he is a priest. His wife is Elizabeth. And then we read of their character in verse five, or verse six rather. They're both righteous and blameless. They're not sinless, but this is a godly couple. It's a pious couple. But then we read in verse seven of their grief. They're barren. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now we read these, I think, and think more like a senior adult. I don't think that was actually the age. It's probably middle to late 40s. I don't know what you consider old these days. Uh, Friday at the golf course, the guy asked me, are you over 55? 
Like, bro, I'm not 45, okay? Let's just, let's just end this conversation. Uh, now, I could, I could see how you confuse Pastor Matt Sigmund for 55, right? He just turned 50, by the way. I call him 50 Sig. At any rate, it was old in terms of the priesthood and old in terms of life expectancy in the first century. And so the point is, they thought they would never have a child. And boy, something was about to happen to this couple. And every lady who has experienced this desire for a child, but being unable to have a child, can identify with Elizabeth's pain here. And this is how the Gospel of Luke begins. Isn't that wonderful? Truth to struggle. Gospel to struggle. Gospel to hurt. Questions from others she probably had, being the object of insensitive remarks, maybe tempted to want someone else's child, and probably doubts about the goodness of God. And in Hebrew culture, it was even worse. It was intensified. Barrenness was considered a disgrace, which is why at the end of the story, she says, the Lord has taken away my disgrace. And some even viewed it as punishment. But that wasn't the case. Luke wants us to know right up front, she's righteous. It's a godly person. She wasn't suffering because of her sin. Sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. But God wasn't punishing her. He was actually about to do a miracle. He was about to give them a child who would prepare the way of Jesus Christ. But here we find them disappointed. And I think that's a good reminder for us. You may be godly and still encounter deep disappointment. Right? God never guarantees we won't have hurt and grief. The question in our trial is not, why is this happening? But how can I glorify God? Amen. How can I glorify God in this trial? It's a hard question to ask, isn't it? We want to ask the other one. Well, we see Gabriel here uh, appears to Zechariah. He's called by name later. And God picks the most significant time in Zechariah's life to reveal his purposes to him. Verses 8 to 10, we read about this, this priestly duty that Zechariah was, was, was doing. He was a member of the 24 division of priests, one of about 18,000 priests. And according to the Mishnah, a priest could not offer incense, as he's doing here, more than once in his life. And some priests never did it at all. So this is an important time. They would offer this incense and make these prayers for, for uh, the people of God twice a day. There's a great parallel, I think, about the evening sacrifice here to, to Daniel that 3 p.m. prayer where they would pray for the deliverance of Israel. So Zechariah here is probably in this temple praying about the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of his people. And the incense symbolizing these prayers that were arising. And the angel, verse 11, appears to him when he's offering up this incense. And like in other accounts, when someone sees an angel, it scares him half to death. Verse 12, he's, he's overwhelmed by his appearance. And like in Daniel, the angel assures Zechariah that his prayer has been heard. But it's interesting that he says, your prayer and not prayers, plural. Perhaps this has in mind that, that there was one particular burden on Zechariah's mind and heart, namely the longing for a child. And you can imagine him here in the most holy moment of his life, offering up this incense, perhaps asking, why, Lord? And in this case, Zechariah gets more than he bargained for. <laughs> he gets both the child and the one who would prepare the way 
for the Messiah. God can work both personally and corporately at the same time. Amen. He's praying for Messiah. He's praying for salvation. And he also wants a child. And God answers both. And the birth of John the Baptist, I think, is also showing us God is on the move. 400 years of silence. And throughout redemptive history, we find these ladies who are barren and God intervenes. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Hannah, Ruth, Manoah's wife, now Zechariah. All of this showing us that God is on the move. God's up to something. And we're given verses 14 to 17, an outline of John's ministry. Verse 14, he's going to bring joy to his parents and others. He brings joy just reading about this guy, doesn't he? Uh, he's one of the most fascinating figures. Oh, wild, holy John. Bugs and sugar. Just doing his thing, right? He will be great before the Lord, verse 15. He's going to live this ascetic lifestyle, abstaining from strong drink, being consecrated wholly to God. And then strikingly, verse 15 tells us that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That's, there's a lot there. <laughs> a whole lot there. What shall we say here? Um, let's start with the theological uh, uh, idea of the work of the Spirit. The, Luke, as I mentioned, is stressing the work of the Spirit throughout Luke Acts. And he wastes no time highlighting the, the work of the Spirit. As he says that even from his mother's womb, this child is set apart, filled for service. This word filled is used almost exclusively by Luke and used uh, almost every time the, what follows is some kind of speaking or some kind of a preaching. That this, this one who's going to be the preacher, the herald, the prophet, the witness is not going to do this in his own strength. It's going to be by divine enablement. And we should also probably point out that this is a person in the womb. Because God doesn't fill things, he fills people. He fills people. And it's quite remarkable when you read Luke 1 and 2, how the work of redemption begins in wombs. It begins with John the Baptist in a womb. Jesus in a womb. And we read like the, the word, the baby was lying in a manger, chapter 2, verse 16. Same word for the baby in the womb. It's not two different words. So John here, a person, is set apart in the womb, filled with the Spirit, and he's got a big role to play. He's going to, verse 16, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. Because John's got like one message, repent. <laughs> John, we missed last week's sermon. What you got? Same one as last week. Repent. He's calling people to turn to the Lord. He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's coming in that prophetic tradition. They were waiting on the Elijah to come. You know, at the Passover meal, they had the empty chair, the Elijah chair. And here is John fulfilling that prophetic role. And one of the things he's going to do is bring reconciliation between people to prepare their hearts so that they would be wise, so that they would be ready to embrace the Savior. And that's why it says that he's going to turn hearts of fathers to children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord of people prepared. Well, that's an outline of his ministry. Quite a day for uh, old Zachariah, huh? <laughs> the one time in his life he offers the incense. His heart is broken. They've been grieving for years, no child. Praying for the people of Israel. And Gabriel shows up. And he says, 
I'm going to do both. Well, how would you respond? Here's Zechariah's response. It's not good. (laughs) Zechariah shows us how not to respond to an angel. When he says to the angel, how shall I know this? It's like, hello, pal. What do you mean, how shall I know that? I just told you. God sends Gabriel to Zechariah, and he basically says this. I need more than the promise of God. And that is a convicting problem, isn't it? Have you ever identified with Zechariah? You know what? I'd really like something more than the promise of God. Now, when you read along into Mary, she's got a question, but I don't think it's the same kind of question. When she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? You see, she's not questioning that it's going to happen. It's more practical. It's a practical question. Like, how is this going to happen? <laughs> After all, it's never happened. <laughs> so we, we can, that's a good question. <laughs> it's perplexing, isn't it? But this question is not, will, is, will this happen? I need something more. And Gabriel's like, verse 19, do you know who I am? <laughs> the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. <laughs> and that's what the Christmas story is, it's good news. And Gabriel then gives... Zechariah both rebuke and grace. Notice it goes back and forth. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. A rebuke for Zechariah. You're going to be unable to talk probably to hear as well temporarily. The grace is these things will still take place. Another rebuke because you did not believe in my words. And then more grace, which will be fulfilled in their time. So now we have what is one of the more humorous scenes in the New Testament, though I wouldn't have laughed at Zechariah in the moment. He has just received the greatest news of his whole life and the greatest news that the people who are standing outside could have received, but he can't talk. It says, and the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Ordinarily, the priest didn't stay long in the temple. Offer up the prayers, offer up the incense and and go out. And then the priest would come out and pronounce the Aaronic benediction from Numbers chapter 6. Lord be gracious to you, make his face shine upon you. So they're waiting, but there's this big delay. What is Zechariah doing in there? And then when he comes out, it says that he is unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. They had realized something was up. And so he kept making signs to them. Can you imagine not being able to talk and trying to play charades with the people to explain what Gabriel just told you? That must have been a fascinating sight as he's trying to act it out, perhaps. Like, is it a chicken? Turkey? An angel. It's an angel. Uh, And then trying to describe John. How do you do that uh, to the people? He's got the best news in the world and he can't share it. Not temporarily. We know that he would have loved to share it based on the song that we see see later. When God opens up his mouth, this is 164, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. But he's got this temporary muteness, right? And I think 
reckons on to it when he says Luke has written about Zechariah's unbelief so that we would be more certain of our faith and more urgent to tell people about it. You see, God has not shut our mouths. So let's open them. Many live like Zechariah, though they're not mute. Out of fear of man or preoccupation with other things. If God hasn't shut our mouths, let's, let's use them. Well, we read of Elizabeth in verse uh, 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden. And so she is there worshiping, preparing for the birth of John. She has been filled with disappointment, but now she says the Lord has done something for her, taken away her disgrace. And that's how the Gospel of Luke begins. I love this good news to hurting people. Good news to sufferers and sinners. God shows us here that he meets his servants in their doubt and in their disappointment. Like, do you feel like in your doubt and disappointment, you've been cut off or God is not aware or he's just kind of dealing with the, the people who don't have doubts and disappointments? No, man. Like he is right here in the muck of their lives. And we have this this decision to make, don't we, in our doubt, in our disappointment, in our grief? Will we cave into anger, bitterness, jealousy, lack of joy? Oh, yeah. Or will we trust God? This story is written to have that we may trust our God. How many childless couples have spent lives, their lives pouring into other children, adopting children? As one writer says, sometimes a roadblock is not a dead end, but a fresh turn in the road. Again, the question for us is, how will we glorify God in our trial? That's how the story opens. Now, quickly to the birth or the prediction of Jesus' birth. Gabriel appears to Mary, verses 26 to 31. This time, it is not in a temple, but in this obscure Galilean village. The, the coming of Christ is, is told with such an emphasis on humility, foreshadowing his ministry showing how God works and who God works through. He works through the humble. And here he doesn't appear to a man, the man, the husband. He appears to the lady, Mary. She is a virgin and she is engaged to Joseph. This betrothal involved a formal engagement and a year later, a wedding. Her age is not specified for us, but she could have been as young as 12. But she at, at, at most was a, a young teenager which is, again, a remarkable thing to think about. God doesn't choose the older Elizabeth. He chooses this young lady in her teenage years. Right? When you're a teenager, well, life's weird when you're a teenager, isn't it? Teenagers, you can say amen to that. And as you, as you look for significance, purpose, does anybody see me, know me? And God meets Mary in that moment. Again, he meets us in our, in our, in our struggle in, in life. And Mary takes her role seriously. So teenagers, you've got a great model here, right? To, to take the kingdom of God seriously right now. And we see here that she has nothing really to offer. So there's nothing impressive about Mary other than, well, what matters. Her humility, her willingness to be used by God. She has no credentials. She has no resume. She has no upper class identity. She has no degree. Luther said, well, you know, God could have come to Caiaphas' daughter. She was rich and well-known. No, he comes to Mary, and the angel says in verse 28 that she is highly favored. That is, God has chosen to be gracious to her. He didn't come to her because of her merit. 
We don't deify Mary. He came to her because he was gracious. So it shows us that God's ways are expressions of his grace. And his grace to her is evident in the fact that he says, the Lord is with you. And after this holy visitation, she is assured once again of, of God's favor in verses 29 and 30. The angel, verse 30, says, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. God is gracious in appearing. He's gracious in fulfilling his promises. And after this announcement is, is, is made to her, we're given something of the outline of Jesus' ministry or Jesus' kingship. Set in contrast to John's, who's going to point to Jesus, Read in verse 32 that he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. You recall if you were here last year, we looked at the royal Psalms, how the Davidic king, the Messiah, would also have a unique relationship to the father as the son. He is the royal son. Jesus is the son of the most high. And this son will sit on the throne of David and his kingdom will have no end. That'll, that'll work, won't it? This is a promise, this promise that was made in 2 Samuel of one coming after David who would reign forever. And you're like, all right, is it Solomon? Not quite. <laughs> is it? And you go down the list and you read through those kings and you're like, is this promise still going to happen? But the prophets assured us that this Davidic king would come and Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, you're going to have that child. That is the Davidic son. That peace and shalom will happen. His kingdom will have no end. Read in Revelation 22. I, Jesus, am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. How can you be the root and the descendant? Because there's no one like Jesus Christ. There's no one like Jesus Christ. He is the forever king that God promised. Thank you for that. Amen. It seemed like a, a real strange way, though, didn't it, to, to bring a king who would eventually die on a cross, and it looks like he's going to lose, which doesn't make sense because Messiah's win. But it was through his dying that he was winning. As he rose from the dead, and he crushed our enemy, and by his stripes we are healed. And we have this salvation now, but it's, a, it's, an, it's also a not yet salvation. But here he is, Mary, David's son and David's Lord. Sometimes you hear that song around this time of year. I don't want to stir up controversy, but I already have. Mary, did you know? Well, I'll move on. Verse 34. <laughs> what I do want to say is that she did know a lot of stuff, at least. She may not know all the specific miracles, but look, notice what she knows. They're like, yeah, she knows. So I said, an angel told her. Uh, and we know in her song, she, she expresses the fact that she knows that she's having Messiah. That her son's going to reign forever. And there's only one in that category. All right. I'm being a little cheeky. Verse 34 to 38. Here's Mary's response. It's an understandable question, again, when she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I've never been with a man. Now think about all the preparation you get before you get into adulthood. So you can be ready to meet all of life's challenges. <laughs> you get education about everything, don't you? But nothing could have prepared her for this moment. There's not a book out there on this, Mary. <laughs> There's not a seminar you could ever take. There's no one in human history that had this experience. 
And so that's a good question. There are bad questions in life, contrary to popular opinion. Right, when people say, there are no bad questions. Yes, there are, lots of bad questions. But, but this is a good question. How will this be? And the angel described upon you And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The same Holy Spirit who hovered over creation is, will, will hover over, overshadow Mary and bring about this new creation. Isn't that a powerful thing? How is this going to happen? The Holy Spirit is going to do this work. And the only child in human history to be called Holy the Son of God will be the result of the Holy Spirit working in the life of this virgin. This is Isaiah's long-awaited child, fully divine, fully human. Oh, yeah. You step back and look at the whole grand biblical story, Sarah, barren, Rebecca, barren, Rachel and Leah, barren, Ruth, barren, Hannah, barren, Elizabeth, barren, Mary, a virgin. In each case, God intervenes and significant children are born in redemptive history. But Christmas magnifies the most miraculous birth and the most significant child. Oh, yeah. And how does it happen? The Holy Spirit does this work. He is the sinless Savior. Born, he's fully human. Divine, he's sinless. God just didn't drop the sun from the heavens. Like the Greek gods apparently showed up, right? But no, this shows us how Jesus is humanity without inherited sin. This makes possible the uniting of the full deity and humanity in one person. And this is one of the most disputed events in the history of the world, isn't it? Larry King, the interviewer, was once asked, if you could interview anyone, who would you like to interview? And he said, Jesus Christ. And they said, well, what would you ask Jesus? And he says, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. That's what Luke's on about in chapter one, a history defining issue. Is this real? And Luke has written his account that you may have certainty that these things are true. Well, we read here that she receives an additional word of encouragement. Verse 36 is not just about you, Mary, but there's something else going on. Your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. So Mary knows that God here is at work. This is kind of an additional sign, as it were, that, that um, what's been communicated to her is, is coming to pass that God is on the move. And how do you respond to all of this? This story of this barren older lady and this virgin teenager who are gonna give birth and bring about the salvation of sinners for nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. Man, I love, I love this story, man. <laughs> I love this passage so much. Nothing will be impossible with God. I remember being a new Christian in college, and I put this verse in my baseball hat. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. I think it's in many ways an echo of Genesis 18 when Sarah is barren, and the question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? 
And we read the answer in Luke. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. I wonder if there is anything in your life that seems impossible. Do you think you've sinned too much to be forgiven? It's impossible to be forgiven. Impossible for God to meet your financial needs. Impossible for your work or ministry to succeed. Impossible to be reconciled with friends you've lost, family members who are wayward. Impossible for a loved one to come to faith in Christ. We need a fresh dose of Luke 137. Oh, yeah. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Amen. There's no sin he can't forgive, no relationship he can't mend, no need he can't meet, no trial he can't comfort, and no sinner he can't convert. Our God is the God of the virgin birth. Let's trust him today. And I love Mary's response, verse 38. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Did you love that response? <laughs> I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She's going to face a lot as this story unfolds. Mary would be asked, or is being asked to carry a child without being married. Making her the object of much ridicule in her context. But she is God's servant, and she will be obedient. What she knows is God is with her, and with God nothing shall be impossible. She basically prays the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May we all be able to say that. May it be to me, Lord, according to your word. God's promises can be trusted. The entire story here shows us this. And we see a word of hope that God often delights to work in impossible situations. Oh, yeah. And ultimately, we see that God's son has come into the world to save sinners like you and I. And he shall reign forever. He shall reign forever. The one mediator between man and God. Oh, yeah. The man Christ Jesus. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we're like, we're like John just pointing you to Jesus. Oh, yeah. He will have you. That's why he came into the world to seek and save the lost. To become a Christian, all you need is need. Admit it and embrace the grace of Christ as many of us have. And if you're a believer today, let me just encourage you to open your mouth. God hasn't shut it. And let's tell the world about our Savior. Devoting our lives to his service. As the hymn writer put it well, let all mortal flesh keep silent and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded, for with blessing in his hand, Christ our God descendeth our full homage to demand. Oh, yeah. He has descended and our homage he demands. And we gladly give it, don't we? For all that he has done. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Deepen our trust and our love and our adoration today, we pray, as a result of, of being together. Lord Jesus, we glorify you. We bless you. We think about your first coming and we marvel. And we look forward to your second coming with great hope and anticipation. And now in the Lord's Supper, we think about both of what you've done for us in the past and all that you have for us in the future. All of it by grace, and we praise you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.